0: So we're studying life in this series, and life's a pretty big topic. Um, all of our lives, in some ways, are different. We have different backstories, we have different histories, particular circumstances, families. So there's a lot of difference to our lives, but kind of the major categories of all of our lives are pretty similar. Details within those categories different, but we all experience very similar uh, categories of issues within our, in our life. So what we're doing in this series is we're saying, okay, what are some of those common issues that we all face, we all deal with, and then what does the Bible say about that? How, does, how do I use that area of my life to glorify God and become more like Christ? That's what we studied last week is sort of over all of the areas of our life is the question, why did God put this in in my life, and how does it better glorify him and help turn me more into the image of Jesus Christ? And so we're we're now gonna take about eight areas and, and ask those questions. How do I live out this area in a way that honors God? There's one principle that's gonna be true across all of these areas, and it, it helps if we get clarity on that principle. Uh, Before we jump into the specifics, um, the Psalms addresses this area. The Psalms is the largest book of the Bible. It's basically in the middle of your Bible, so if you're going to open and find it and read along with us, just kind of open to the middle, you'll probably open up to the Psalms. The Psalms is a collection of poems and prayers and song lyrics, Uh, tons of them. So it it was put together largely by creative types, arts type people, musicians, artists, poets, uh, those sort of people. And and they expressed their ideas about God as the Holy Spirit inspired them. They expressed their ideas about God in poems and prayers and and song lyrics. Psalm 24 is written by David, a fairly popular guy. He wrote a lot of the Psalms. Uh, he was the king of Israel. He defeated Goliath. So that David is writing. And this is what he says in Psalm 24:1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So Paul's right there. David's belief, the Bible's belief, Christianity's belief is the world and everything that's in the world belongs to God. All of the people belong to God. Everything you see, everything you touch, everything that is belongs to God. So if everything in the earth, including the earth itself, the universe, if everything belongs to God, how much belongs to us? Nothing, right? It's pretty simple math, right? Everything, God, us, nothing. Infinity over here. Nada over here, right? It's pretty simple. If everything is God's, then nothing is mine. And that's kind of hard to accept because it's so easy to look at different aspects of our life and go, mine, mine, I did that. I'm responsible for that. That belongs to me. I worked for that. You don't know what I went through to get that. Mine, mine, mine. And David, thousands of years ago, said, mm, sorry, not yours. Nothing's yours. Nothing's really yours. It all belongs to God. Now, his logic behind that, the reasoning that he says that in verse 1, he gives us in verse 2. Here's verse 2. For he, God, founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Basically, David's logic is because everything came from God, then everything belongs to God because God created everything when there was nothing, like we wouldn't be here apart from God putting us here and putting the universe into existence. We wouldn't be here apart from God keeping planets in their orbits and keeping the sun from burning us up and keeping everything working. Hebrews chapter 1 says that God sustains everything. Apart from that, we're not here, and all of the stuff that's in our life isn't here. Therefore, it's not really ours. It belongs to God because He made it all anyway. Revelation, last book of the Bible. We get to kind of look into heaven a couple of times, and here's one of the things that they're saying in heaven. Revelation four eleven, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. Everything, nothing falls outside of everything, right? Everything that is, God, you created, you spoke into existence from nothing, therefore it all belongs to you. This is Colossians chapter 1, Paul's writing, the Son, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in Him all things were created. And then Paul details what all things mean. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything. If you can see it, God created it. If you can't see it, God created it. Everything that is belongs to God because he created everything. The Abraham Kuyper, well-known quote by Kuyper He writes, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine, mine. And God's not in heaven going, mine, mine, you can't have that, mine, mine. It's just the reality is He created everything, and so everything that is belongs to Him. Nothing belongs to us, so we don't get to point to anything and say, mine, because He made everything. If you know me at all, you know that I don't make things, right? I don't make things better. I don't repair things. I'm pretty good at making things worse. I don't, in general, make things. I I, I told some of you when I was in college, I needed a place to put my books because the apartment I was sharing with some guys was too small. And so I made a a, a set of uh, bookshelves, and they're ugly and wobbly, and uh, surprisingly, we still have them. They are not on display in our house. Like We didn't find like the perfect, oh, this will, the shelves will look good in this corner. Right? We didn't do that. My community group came over uh, Wednesday night, which, by the way, was fantastic. If you're not in a group, get in a group. We had a great first week. But my group meets at my house, and when they, when they came in, we, we did not take them to the foyer and say, here are our shelves, circa 1990 by Sermons & Co., because the shelves are in the garage, right? And there's old shoes on them, and garden tools, and cleaning supplies, um, but hey, they're, they're like, what, 26 years old now? They're like antique now, so I'm expecting them to be valuable one day. All that to say, I don't make good stuff. I, I make lousy stuff sometimes. But the truth is, I don't really make stuff anyway, because I didn't make the wood that became my lousy shelves. I I didn't make the metal that became the screws that sometimes hold together my really bad shelves. Some of you make better things than I make. Some of you make houses and buildings and, you know, you really do make stuff, but the reality is you don't make stuff. I mean, what we do at best is we assemble what God's already made. Like, we put together certain things that are already there because God spoke them into existence, God made them, and and we put things together. We assemble things that God already made and God already owns, which makes us not the maker and not the owner. It makes us the manager, or or we use the word the steward. It's our responsibility to manage. What God has made and what God has put into our life in a way that brings Him glory and honor, in a way that helps shape us into the image of Christ. So we're stewards. We're not owners. Now, this goes to every area of my life. Every area of my life, I have to look at and say, well, that's not mine. So how would the owner want me to operate this area of my life? How would the owner want me to manage my relationship to my wife or to my kids or my career? Or my friendships? How does the owner who created all things and put things into my life, what does he want me to do? We're managers. We're stewards. At the beginning of this week's study in the Life Study Book, those of you who are in the community group, those of you who got the study book, at the very beginning is a quote by Larry Burkett this week. And a lot of you don't, don't know that name. Larry Burkett used to be the Christian Clark Howard. Like He was the Christian version of, here's how to manage your money, here's how to invest your money, here's what the Bible says about savings. Some of you know Dave Ramsey, um, Financial Peace University. Larry Burkett was Dave Ramsey before there was Dave Ramsey. He was kind of the guy who started, uh, him and a guy named Ron Blue, kind of started the Christian, let's look at finances from a Christian perspective. This is what Burkett says at the beginning of this week's study. Um. Uh, by the way, Julie and I got his financial guide for young couples when we were just married, and I'm sure it's really dated now. It was one of the best gifts that we ever get. got. Here's Larry Burkett. The one principle that surrounds everything else is that of stewardship, that we're the managers of everything that God has given us. Really profound student uh, statement. The one principle that permeates every area of my life is Not mine, not mine, not mine. Belongs to God, belongs to God, belongs to God. And he's given it to me. He's entrusted it to me to manage in a way that honors him. So, of course, I would want to be the best husband and father that I can be because my wife and three daughters, they're not mine. They were gifted to me by God, and I'm to be a good steward of those relationships. My career, my career. I should look at that as something given to me by God. And yes, I should want to do my absolute best because God's allowed that into my life. That principle is true for all of the areas that we look at. It's especially important that we get okay with that truth for today's topic because this week's study in our community groups revolves around our finances, and I know there's always, for some of us, an immediate defensiveness when finances comes up in the context of church, right? Because you, you think the pastor's going to ask you to give all your money to the church and we're not going to let you out until you write a check today and the doors have been locked and, okay, we've, we've uninstalled the battery to your car and so you're going to have to give. And so we have, you have all of these thoughts when money and church come up and and then there's televangelists and like really hideous suits, and all just all of these things that you think about pastors and church asking for money. And some of those are warranted and some of those are well-founded. And I totally understand that. And yet, even those resources aren't ours, they belong to God. And God has given us principles, and some of that's giving, but that's not the only principle. God has given us principles to help us manage that area of our lives in a way that honors Him and glorifies Him. And let's be honest, this is an area we really struggle to accept that because we're so tempted to look at our finances and go, yeah, definitely mine, mine. I worked for that. This cost me X number of hours of my life that I sacrificed in exchange for this paycheck. Mine, mine, mine. Mine And thousands of years ago, David said, nope, everything in the earth, God's. You're the manager, you're the steward. Now, the Bible gives all sorts of encouragements and warnings and commands related to finances. Let's run through some of those. Hebrews is a book close to the end of the Bible. We're not real sure who wrote it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, we're given this command. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. This is the verse that gets uh, often misquoted as keep your lives free from money or money is the root of all evil, right? And the Bible doesn't say that, but the Bible gives warnings about loving money. My heart getting attached to, getting drawn to my resources and my finances and thousands of years ago this author said keep your lives free from the love of money or a paraphrase of that be careful not to love stuff and especially be careful not to love stuff more than you love people and more than you love god don't love stuff in the way that you love god don't let your heart be drawn toward more and more stuff As I was reading this this week, it struck me as interesting that this was written 2,000 years ago. And 2,000 years ago, they didn't have cars. They didn't live in the homes that we live in. They didn't wear the clothes that we wear. They didn't have 401Ks. They didn't have credit cards. Like a lot of the stuff that's most tempting to us financially wasn't even around when this was written. And this author knew money's going to be a problem for a lot of people. Like Getting their heart right when it comes to finances is going to be a real struggle for a lot of people. Before smartphones, right? Before any of that came along, this is going to be a problem. Now, Here's a, here's a couple of challenges when it comes to money. One is money is extremely sneaky and seductive. Money is extremely sneaky and seductive. Things, stuff, buy me, spend on me. Right? It's just very, very sneaky. And, and let me explain it this way. We never get to a point where there isn't something else we could buy, right? Like, you never get to a point in your life, no matter how much money you make, no matter what your income status is, like, you never get to a point where there's nothing else that you think, it'd be nice to have that. I sure would like one of those. I want to upgrade this. I'd like to get the newest one. That's how sneaky money is. It's like there's always something else we could do with money. If we gave everybody $50,000 on the way out the door, which we're not, by the way, okay, they're not, but if we did, on the way out, we handed you a briefcase full of unmarked bills, $50,000, and you take that home, here's what I know, here's what I know, most, if not all of us, would have no problem finding something to do with $50,000, I (laughs) would, amen, yeah, most of us, we could manage doing something with $50,000, and maybe you would argue, well, I would do something good with it, probably a lot of us would, probably a lot of us would do something really good, or really beneficial, or really helpful, and maybe some of us would do things that aren't really good, and aren't really beneficial, and maybe we would waste it. Or maybe I would think you wasted yours and you think I wasted mine. We could find something to do with $50,000 and at the end of $50,000, you know what none of us would say? None of us would say, well, I'm never going to spend any more money in my life. I got that out of my system. $50,000 and I am good. I don't need anything else the rest of my life. This is the way money is. It's sneaky in this way and that we never get to a point where we don't feel a tug towards more. We never never get there. And different from when Hebrews was written, it's so easy today. So easy. I mean, if we direct deposited into your account, some of you could sit right here on your smartphone and spend $50,000 before you left the building. Right? Amazon Prime members, you with me? Huh? One-click checkout. One-click checkout. More, more, I got to have that, I need that. And Hey, it's no shipping. I'm saving money every time. <laughs> click, click, click. Look at all the money I saved. Click, click. $50,000 later in like five minutes. This is sort of the sneaky draw of stuff and money and resource. Is we never get to a point where we go, I'm done. I don't want anything else. I don't want anything else. So the reality is, since you're never going to get there, don't expect the next purchase to satisfy that in you. Don't expect the ne- next expenditure. Don't expect the next delivery from FedEx to fulfill that part of you. Because it doesn't. There's always more and more and more and more that we want. Because it's not a stuff issue, it's a heart issue. It's in my heart getting drawn to needing and wanting and wanting more. It's interesting, in Hebrews, if you read the passage just above this one, the one that talks about not loving money, it's a a passage about adultery in your marriage. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 4, which is right above the one we just read, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So the Hebrews writer gives this strong statement about, hey, don't love the wrong people. Like if you're, in, you're married, then you're committed to that person. Don't love someone outside of your marriage. This would be wrong. And then immediately he says, and don't love the wrong stuff too. You can love the wrong people, and that's wrong. But if you love stuff that's just as wrong, like if, you're, if your heart is unsatisfied all the time and you think spending more is gonna fill that gap, that's just as wrong as loving the wrong person because it's not a stuff issue, it's a heart issue. It's my affections, my desires are for more and more and more. Money's sneaky. Other problem is. Most of us find it easy to rationalize our spending. We can always explain why we needed the next whatever. We can always explain why it was important to spend it now. We can always explain why I deserved that, right? but I deserve to have that. But there's a reason, there's a rationalization, right? Do we, anybody need Home Shopping Network intervention? Right? Or, or does your spouse need Home shop, Shopping Network intervention? Because right? I can always rationalize why I need that thing that they're showing me. Well, of course that would be good. Well, of course I'm saving money. If I spend $200 on this, it would be a great saving. We just have this way of rationalizing. Now, what's the antidote? What's the answer? The writer of Hebrews says the answer is be content with what you have. The answer is not, well, when I get the next thing, then I'll be satisfied. He says, no, no, no. Don't love money. Instead, be content. Have an attitude of, you know what, it's enough. It's enough. I don't have to have more in order to be satisfied, in order to feel valuable, in order to feel like I've accomplished something. Like, my self-worth is not tied up. In getting some new thing. I'm content. We said last week that the goal of these areas is to conform us more into the image of Christ. And this is one of those examples. Conforming into the image of Christ is being able to go through life content with where God has me. Content with what God has given me. That doesn't mean that you turn down the next raise that you're offered at work, right? I mean, you, I'm good, I don't need any more, I'm fine. It doesn't mean you don't have savings, it doesn't mean you don't plan for the future. It means that you aren't driven by this need for more. Be content. Root out covetousness, wanting what everybody else has. You wanna become more like Jesus? Get that out of your heart. Get rid of this notion that our value is somehow tied up in where we live or what we drive or what we wear or what we're able to buy or where we vacation. Get rid of that. Now, a couple of suggestions. Just some practical suggestions for working biblical principles into your daily, weekly, monthly financial habits. Here's the first one. Declare a spending fast. Just declare a spending fast. If you you want to get control of your finances, if you want to see where you are on contentment level, just decide for this period of time, I'm going to declare a spending fast. Now, fast is... Uh, a biblical word is used outside of Christianity and religion as well, but, but it's a biblical practice. It's given to us in the Bible. It's a biblical practice of discontinuing a certain activity for a specific amount of time in order to focus on a greater spiritual goal. So I'm going to stop doing this. For an amount of time so that I can focus more on this or so I can learn something by doing that. So my encouragement to you is if this is a struggle, if this is an area where you want to find out how much you love money, just declare spending fast. Now, obviously, you can't fast from all spending, Um uh, if your power gets shut off, Walton EMC doesn't want to hear, well, I'm doing this fast, and then my church said I was supposed to do, so I can't pay you for like two months. All right, they're shutting your power off. That's what's going to happen. The bank's going to take your home. But what you could do is say, outside of the essential bills that I, we need to survive every month, food, shelter, transportation, outside of those essential costs, For a week, for two weeks, for a month. We're going to fast from extra spending. And see what our budget looks like at the end of that. See how our hearts feel at the end of that. Measure where I really struggled and where I really wanted to go spend money. Just a period of time. When you fast now, maybe it's not totally all the extras. Maybe it's specific. Maybe it's eating out. We're going to not do that for a week or a month. Uh, maybe it's expensive coffee. We're not going to do that for a week or a month, and we're just going to see what happens in our heart and in our life and what we hear from God. And maybe are there resources now that could go to other things, or maybe. I just haven't realized how much has been going towards that. Declare a spending fast. Second suggestion. Determine to begin saving something. If you want to bring the financial area of your life under biblical principles, then determine that I'm going to save something. Maybe it's whatever ends up extra from this fast. Right? Maybe if you need to jump start an emergency savings account, then maybe a month fast of some area, and then that gets your emergency savings started. What, what trips most of us up in the budget area is unforeseen expenses, and we didn't plan for them. Right? Something breaks, Something you have to go buy something new, you have to get a major repair, you weren't intending, you didn't see it coming. But there's no extra, there's no margin, there's no emergency savings. And so it wipes your budget out. We run to the credit card to take care of that. And then we end up in this cycle of always being behind in our financial area. So determine this biblical principle, the Bible talks about savings, determine to begin saving something. Third suggestion be cautious with debt. <clears throat> Pay what you owe and avoid debt as much as possible. In general, the Bible gives great warnings about personal debt. Great warnings. I don't think the Bible says don't ever do it. Most of us would not be able to afford a house if we didn't take on some manageable amount of debt. But the Bible consistently says you need to be careful with this because the borrower is slave to the lender. Like there's a bondage that goes with debt, and you need to be very careful about living that way consistently. The Bible is also very clear that as followers of Jesus, a part of representing Him in this world is paying what we owe. So if there's debt in my life, a commitment to paying that off, if I can't do it all at once, prioritizing paying that off. As followers of Jesus, we're to pay our debts, and we're to be very, very careful about taking on more debt. Here's a a simple way to eliminate some of our debt, a simple mindset to eliminate some, maybe all, of our future debt, and it's just this. Sometimes avoiding debt is as simple as saying, I don't need that right now. Sometimes avoiding debt is just as simple as being able to say, love it, would like to have it. I don't need that right now. Now, why don't we practice? Can we practice? Ready? I don't need that right now. Yeah. Yeah. That would eliminate, for some of us, a lot of our tendency to go into debt is to be able to say, clear mind. I don't need that right now. Maybe I'll come back. Maybe later I'll be at a point where I could purchase this. There's nothing wrong with that thing. It's not an immoral thing. It's not an ungodly thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just that financially I'm not at a place to get that thing. So I don't need that right now. Would keep a lot of us out of debt. Last, Last suggestion learn to be generous if you want to bring the financial area of your life under the lordship and and, uh, command and oversight of God, learn to be generous. Learn to be a giver. Because I can tell you, nothing breaks the love of money more than giving some of it away. Nothing breaks the hold of money on us Like freely, by choice, giving money away to someone who needs it. You say, here, I can meet that need. I can take some of what God has given me because it's not mine anyway. I can take some of what God has given me and I can help somebody who has a need. Now, the catch with generosity. The catch is the only way to learn to be generous is to practice generosity. It's the only way. You you can't read a book on generosity and suddenly be a generous person. It might help. There are great books on generosity and philanthropy. Great, wonderful books. Read them. It doesn't make you generous because you got to the end of the book. Doing a Bible study on generosity does not make you generous. There's, There's great Bible studies. I can point you in the direction of some. Some wonderful Bible studies and preaching about generosity... That doesn't make you generous. Listening to a talk one Sunday doesn't make you generous. The only way to be generous is to practice generosity, to help somebody in need. To to put your money with other people's money and and resource a a missionary or or a local agency or, or something that God is doing to freely, by choice, offer what you have. Here's something else. When I give money away, it also allows me to enjoy the resources that I have. You could talk to many people who are in, in the worship service today, and they will tell you the greatest joy they have in their financial area is when they get to help somebody else. The greatest joy they have is when they put their money together with other people and they see God use it. Or they put it into a ministry or into a church and, and they see God do things out of that or they they help a local community service agency I mean they will tell you they are far more excited about that than paying their tax bill on April 15th, right? I mean that's not much of a stretch, but I mean we pay bills all the time. We we write to power companies and water companies and we pay mortgages and but but to freely give a part of what God's put into my life to help somebody else. There's no greater financial joy than to be able to do that. Um, And, yes, a part of that, a part of that generosity, I believe, for followers of Jesus... It's helping to resource the church where you worship, whatever church that is, wherever you're getting ministry, wherever you're growing spiritually, wherever you come for your spiritual accountability and and your spiritual growth, that local ministry should be a part of your giving. And I know you're thinking, well, of course you would say that. That's what you're supposed to say. Now, this is what the Bible says. So the Bible, Old and New Testament affirm, like a part of following God's commands when it comes to our our finances is saying, yeah, I want to help resource the church that's ministering to me. I I grew up with Southern Baptist parents. Some of you know my story. I I grew up with Southern Baptist parents, and and my parents practiced tithing. Ten percent of what they made, they gave to the church where they attended. They taught myself and my sisters, look, this is what we do. This is what we give back to God, and it's not a decision or a debate or... Uh, we don't try to figure out the amount every week. We just we come before God and we say, God, this is yours. This is, this is saying, I recognize the whole thing belongs to you, so I'm going to give you this amount as a representative of the whole. In my whole life, I've practiced that. In our marriage, Julie and I practiced that, and we wouldn't stop. We wouldn't stop. Because it allows us to say to God, it's yours. It's not mine. I don't get to decide what happens to it. I don't get to decide how much week after week after week. I just, I just bring this to you every week and I release it into the kingdom. And I would encourage you to be that kind of consistent giver. Not because journey needs the money. God has, God has blessed us with resources. This is, this is not, we can't make payroll, we're about to have to close down. This is not that kind of message. God has poured resources and blessings into journey. This is an opportunity for me to say, look, in order to bring your finances under the lordship and leadership of God and honor Him when it comes to generosity. And church is one way of doing it. It's not the only way. There's lots of ways. There are lots of wonderful organizations. We support organizations outside of our church. You could too. But practice generosity because that's the only way to become generous. Because in the end, It's not ours anyway. It's not mine. It's not yours. Thousands of years ago, David said, the earth, everything in it, it belongs to God. So live that way in the areas of your life, including the financial area. And I guess that means time's up. (laughs) Let's pray. God, you are so good to pour blessings into our life. And we are so tempted to compare ourselves to other people and and to say, well, I want what they have, or I wish I had that, or I wish I was in that situation. Instead of saying, God, thank you for what you've put into my life. And now help me to manage it in the way that you want. Help me to steward it, to be a good steward of what you've given me. And that's hard in the financial area because we have bills and and we have past and and maybe we've made some bad choices in the past financially and we're trying to recover from those. And especially in this area, it's tempting for all of us to look at our checkbook and say, Mine, that's mine, but but I can't let go. I can't give because but God give us generous hearts. Give us generous hearts and help us, not just in our giving, but but in our savings and, and our caution when it comes to debt and the priorities in taming that part of us that always wants more and can always rationalize another expense help us to become like Christ to be content to walk through life with gratitude and peace and contentment I pray it in Jesus' name.